Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Imagine there were 50-50 odds that you had just been chosen as one of the people who will decide whether or not to criminally indict Donald Trump. That may very well be the case for the grand jurors who were just seated in Fulton County, Georgia. Today, about 100 Georgians showed up at the Superior Court of Fulton County in Atlanta. And for the sake of their privacy, we are not going to show you any of them. But you can see Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis was in the room. There she is right there. Now, the judge sent about half of the potential jurors home. But the other half he directed to one side of the room or the other. They were split into Grand Jury A and Grand Jury B. Each one was made up of 23 jurors plus alternates. Now, other than the $25 a day these grand jurors will get for their time, they may also get the chance to make history. For more than two years now, Fonnie Willis has been investigating Trump's alleged election interference in the state of Georgia. Last year, the DA impaneled a special grand jury that heard from a grand total of 75 witnesses. The forewoman of that special grand jury has since told the press that the jurors recommended indictments for multiple people on a range of charges. But that special grand jury did not have the power to indict on its own. To bring an indictment, D.A. Willis needs the approval of a regular grand jury, like the two that were seated today, which happened, and the timeline remains unclear. When might they issue an indictment? Well, earlier this year, Willis sent a letter to the Fulton County Sheriff, alerting him to the need for heightened vigilance and security between today and September 1st. Because at some point in that time frame, the DA will announce her charging decision in this case. Now, two months ago, Willis got even more specific, telling the chief judge of the Fulton County Superior Court that the staff will be working remotely from July 31st to August 18th, and that she's requesting Fulton County judges to not schedule in-person hearings during that time. The idea with that seems to be keep the amount of people at the courthouse to a minimum for their safety. In case say, people are riled up over, I don't know, a big deal criminal indictment. Hmm. So here are the dates these grand juries are impaneled. And here are the dates that Fonnie Willis has indicated that she is likely to indict. You see the overlap? This is all right around the corner. So buckle up. Grand jury B starts Thursday. Grand jury A starts Monday. And then... Down in Florida on Tuesday, which is just a week from today, we are expecting another key decision in another case against Trump. Tuesday will be the first hearing in special counsel Jack Smith's case about Trump's handling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. Late last night, Team Trump formally asked the judge overseeing the case to postpone this criminal trial until after the 2024 election. Obviously, whether that case sees the light of day before or after the 2024 election, has major implications, and it poses the possibility of Trump being able to preemptively pardon himself before the case actually runs its course, or to get his attorney general to stand down on prosecuting it. So the timing here is a major decision. 
We anticipate the judge in this case will make a decision either shortly before or shortly after that Tuesday hearing, again, which is just a week from today. So to recap, we have maybe the most important decision in the Mar-a-Lago case right around the corner. We have a potential indictment in the Fulton County case, also right around the corner. But then on top of all of that, we have this. Andrew Weissman, the lead prosecutor in the Mueller investigation, a former chief of the fraud section at the Department of Justice, and importantly, a legal expert who is pretty damn judicious about not getting over his skis. Andrew Weissman posted this on the new social media platform, you may have heard of it, Threads. Hearing vague rumblings that a federal January 6th indictment may be soon would not surprise me as I think Jack Smith will want to try his case before the Georgia case. Joining us now are Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, a former federal and state prosecutor in New York, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Ladies, thank you for being here. I'm sorry to use the colorful language, but wow, um, all that is happening, all that may happen, Tali. First off, what is your assessment of the notion that Jack Smith may want to get ahead of even D.A. Willis on a potential January 6th related criminal indictment of Donald Trump? Well, I think what Andrew said makes perfect sense because the subject matter of his January 6th case, as opposed to his Mar-a-Lago case, overlaps with what Fannie Willis is looking at, you know, looking for those extra votes and the interference with the certifying of the electors in Georgia. And generally, the feds want to go before state prosecutors and get to go before state prosecutors when charges are available in both jurisdictions. And he is the one who's making it part of a bigger network of crimes of election interference around the country. So I think that's right that this has lit a little bit of a fire under him. And as you said, she has signposted a million yes. different ways exactly what her time frame is. Short and of so, sending out like iCal invites exactly, to the media. Exactly. Uh, Joyce, I mean, we know that uh, Rudy Giuliani has been interviewed by federal prosecutors in this case. Mark Meadows, Mike Pence, the, the central characters of Trump and the January 6th plot are have all testified in front of the uh, prosecutors or in front of the grand jury. <laughs> We're talking about three weeks here. Do you think we might see a federal indictment of the former president or at least charging decisions in the next three weeks as it concerns January 6th? So it's tough to make those guesses. And even prosecutors themselves sometimes don't know for certain exactly when an indictment will drop because there's some fine tuning that might have to be done with evidence towards the end of that preparation time. But the timeline does make a lot of sense. We're about to enter into the campaign season. Things will begin to pick up. Prosecutors, of course, like to avoid interfering during that uh, sort of process with something as astonishing as the indictment of one of the leading candidates, even though here it's been long anticipated. And DOJ's summer calendar makes a little bit of sense here. Typically, you'll see people prepare and finalize things in late July or, or perhaps in one of the first two weeks of August. So I think the calendar may dictate that. But Alex, it's a little bit unusual of a situation here because DOJ, of course, has that first year where there didn't appear to be any investigative activity. The United States Attorney's Office in Atlanta, which would have had jurisdiction over these charges that Fonnie Willis is looking at and apparently 
is prepared to indict on. They did not pursue them. And that was what led to her entry into this race. So she has a good bit of time ahead of Jack Smith. There's no indication that they've worked together to coordinate or even to divvy up charges. She has uh, had conversations with a number of in-state Georgia Republicans, those who were involved in preparing fate slates of electors. And she could certainly have charges internal to Georgia that she would be able to indict. But by all appearances, she's looking at a much larger conspiracy, one that really may bump into the evidence that Jack Smith has. So it'll be interesting to watch this unfold. You know, Tali, I was speaking with uh, Attorney uh, Attorney General Letitia James, New York AG, and she said Mm -hmm. that depending on the timeline of Jack Smith's case, she would adjourn her case. And she also name-checked Alvin Bragg and Fonnie Willis, saying, well, if they go ahead with a potential criminal indictment on January 6th, then we would adjourn our cases. Joyce, I think, just masterfully laid out the way in which Fonnie Willis has been on top of this well before the feds. I mean, do you think she stands down on something like this, given the fact that they didn't do anything for so long? Well, so A.G. James uh, is in a different position because she has civil charges, a civil case against Donald Trump. Yeah. And so, you know, it goes federal crime, state crime, order. And then exactly. And then civil charges uh, in order of importance. But uh, remember, Georgia is a two step process. And so the investigative grand jury that gathered the information that she needs in order to present indictments to the grand jury that is convened today has already done its work. Uh, so I, Joyce is absolutely right that she has a head start there. Uh, Jack Smith also is running this other case, Mar-a-Lago, that, Mar-a-Lago that has some timing challenges of its own. Yes. And so that's also where a lot of his focus must be. And in that one, you know, we have this motion last night that Trump made about delaying indefinitely. And it's not reasonable to ask for indefinite delay. And some of his reasons are not persuasive in the least. But the truth is, the clock is on his side. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually wondered why he did this, because he could have said, I want to, you know, vindicate myself and prove my innocence and then just slowly whittle away at the timeline and push out that case past the point where DOJ can't really pursue it because we are in the heat of the election season. And I think that might still happen, even if Judge Cannon says, no, I'm not going to delay this inevitably, indefinitely. I think uh, Tali brings up the Mar-a-Lago request to uh, delay indefinitely on the part of Trump's defense team. One of the things that I found particularly interesting in their sort of argument was the idea rebutting the contention of the special special counsel that this is not a novel case. Uh, This it does not that Jack Smith has said this this thing can handle can be handled expeditiously because we're not reinventing the wheel here. This is not a novel case. Trump's defense team sort of makes the opposite argument, saying, you know, this is the first test of the intersection of the Presidential Records Act and various criminal statutes. Do they have a case to be made here? I mean, who is right on that question as you see it? So I think that Jack Smith has the better argument here, but it's important to say that Donald Trump has due process rights as a de- as a defendant. So does Walt Nauta. They're entitled to have sufficient time to prepare their case. And it would be uh, on appeal. Convictions could be reversed if they weren't given that opportunity. So the judge will have to be mindful of that. But at the same time, although this defense motion is very well written by Trump's new legal team, 
It just simply doesn't carry any weight. They're asking for no trial date whatsoever without indicating that they'd be willing to waive their speedy trial rights. And the much better practice would be for the judge to set a date and to tell the defendants, look, if you guys have legitimate problems as discovery gets underway, come to me and we can talk about that. But for now, the government has represented that things can move quickly. And it's a little bit disingenuous for Trump's lawyers to complain about how long the process is taking when they have failed to comply with the judge's order to complete all of their paperwork so that attorneys can get security clearances. You know, she issued that order three weeks ago, said, get your paperwork in. And that still isn't done. So she's got a decision point coming. Is she serious about making sure that the people who have a right to have a, a speedy trial, that they get that, or will she line up with Trump? Yeah, I mean, their, their excuse about the discovery process, that it's over 800,000 pages of material, is sort of like the, my complaint in college when I couldn't get a test. There's too much reading. You've got to give me more time. Um, I mean, when it comes to Eileen Cannon, given the embarrassment she suffered in the special master debacle, I mean, where's your money on her trying to be a little bit more... Uh, shall we say, uh, conservative, not politically, but in, just in terms of the scope of her ruling on something like this. Well, so they slapped her pretty hard, and she must be chastised by that, you know, with the whole uh, foray we had into the special master, you know, over the documents that slowed down some of the development of this case. And I, I do think it's unreasonable and unprecedented to say, we just can't set a trial date Ever. at all. So I, I expect her to do the reasonable thing and to set a date. And as Joy said, they can keep coming back. And I expect that they will team Trump in saying, we can't get this done in that time. We can't get this other thing done in that time. And remember, it's not just Trump. It's also NATO. And, you know, it's sort of like the expression that you're only as happy as your least happy kid. You can only move as fast as your slowest defendant. Yes. And he has also contributed to delay, right? He didn't get his lawyer in time. He's got. And so I, I think that this is going to be just kind of a slog for Jack Smith because because it is a complex case. There is a lot of paper. Even motions that are relatively weak, like this challenge of the PRA, you know, against the rules around national security information, uh, even weak motions take time to answer. Yeah. It's gumming up the works in the name of it delay. Is. We've seen it before. Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, Joyce Vance, thank you guys for your expertise. Thanks for your time tonight. Speaking of Trump's legal troubles, specifically the episode in Trump's federal criminal indictment where prosecutors say he waved around classified documents in front of people with zero security clearances. That episode has a backstory and wait till you hear it from one of the reporters at the center of the story. Plus, we're gonna to talk to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about everything from the raging floods that have devastated the Northeast to Republican hypocrisy. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. As we wait to see exactly when Donald Trump will stand trial on the charges of mishandling classified documents, we are getting some very valuable insight into exactly how he ended up in this situation to begin with. If you remember, one of the key things special counsel Jack Smith pointed out in his criminal indictment was a recording of Trump back in July of 2021. On that tape, Trump criticizes his former Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. And apparently, he waves around a secret Pentagon document in front of people who did not have security clearance to look at it. This is part of that tape. Well, with Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. We now know what likely prompted Trump to go on that rant in the first place. Just days before, on July 15th of 2021, the intrepid Susan Glasser of The New Yorker reported that General Milley was extremely worried about what Trump might do to try and stay in power after losing the 2020 election, including possibly attacking Iran. Now, that coverage appeared to infuriate Trump, who then, according to prosecutors, waved classified documents in front of his guests that would seem to exonerate Trump as the source of any Iran attack plan. So it was Susan Glasser's reporting that may have put the bee in Donald Trump's bonnet and in turn given rise to one of the most shocking pieces of evidence in this whole case. As she puts it, the tape, this damning evidence against Trump, would not exist if not for his rift with General Mark Milley. Joining us now to talk about the remarkable feud between Trump and Milley for the very first time on television is the great Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker. Susan, it's great to see you. Thank you for coming up to, to chat on set. Um, what was your reaction when you heard this tape for the first time? I mean, was it like, yep, sounds like Trump? <laughs> well, definitely sounds like Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is a big believer in the weaponization of information. That's what he's trying to do there. And of course, uh, you know, that's very much in keeping with his style. But, um, you know, it's also an example of the big mouth getting Donald Trump mm-hmm. in trouble, right? He doesn't text uh, very much or if at all. He doesn't send emails Uh, But what he does do is talk and talk a lot. And he seemed to be completely oblivious that the tape recorders were on there. And you were uh, reporting on him and your conversations with him. I mean, how characteristic was this behavior? Was this something that happened a lot? This the sort of petty grievances and feuds animating just random conversation? I. Absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump is, uh, you know, sort of a fulminator at trying to do an interview with him. We did two interviews with him for our book, The Divider, that came out last year. And, you know, I have to say it wasn't really an interview so much as an extended dialogue. But at one point I tried to list out all the people that he sort of randomly criticized. And I 
it wasn't just Mark Milley, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, but Milley, I mean, if you were to believe the importance of, I mean, the, the fact that he is waving around classified documents that were drafted for him, presumably at his direction, right, from the Department of Defense, the fact that he's so intent on exonerating himself over this alleged Iran attack, attack plan suggests to me that the Milley feud re- got to him in a sort of visceral way. Or do you think there were other people that rose to that level of indignation? Well, no, I think that, you know, there there was something about Mark Milley. There was this wave of books that were starting to come out in the spring of 2021. Remember, Donald Trump was in exile. He was furious. It wasn't at all clear that he was going to reemerge as the unchallenged leader of the Republican Party, the front runner for 2024 that he is right now. Right then, he was really feeling much more on the ropes. And so this reporting that I did just five days later, he's the one who's bringing this up. And by the way, it also shows how he completely did not understand, you know, the role of either the chairman of the Joint Chiefs yes. or his own role as the president. The idea that the Pentagon having the existence of a Iran war plan would somehow be a, a damning political fact. I, you know, the Pentagon wouldn't be doing its job if it did not have war plans for various scenarios. But also, he says in that tape that we just heard, well, this is off the record. This is off the record. It actually shows up not only in this tape, but in Mark Meadows's book yes. that's published in November of 2021. Yeah. Mark Meadows actually lays the breadcrumbs for this tape in print. I got to ask, because you, you make note of the fact that this is this this all is happening in a period where Trump is licking his wounds, where his future is uncertain. We have reporting that... Um, well, a new book, I believe, claims that White House staff were worried while Trump was president that he was showing classified material to random people. Do you think that the documents, and there are a lot of them that he held onto, may have been used in other, I know I'm asking you to like sort of surmise something you don't have a definite answer for, but given the sort of promiscuousness with which he's waving these documents around and the reporting that this also, this kind of behavior happened while he was president, Would you assume that more instances like Bedminster happened in his post-presidency? Well, let's just say that we're uh, we'll see when the trial actually happens. But um, I I would be very curious to see what additional evidence there is to suggest this. But our reporting for the divider, absolutely. We we spoke with multiple national security officials who worked for Donald Trump throughout his four years. That was a persistent theme almost from the very beginning of his tenure in the White House was this concern that he was being reckless with classified information. He was talking on unsecure phones. That was something that yes. H.R. McMaster, his second national security advisor, John Bolton, they, they all worried about this. Uh, our allies, there was questions about what kind of intelligence Donald Trump might share. There was a, a concern about whether allies would even be more withholding of intelligence because they were so worried about what Donald Trump might say about it. Uh, I got to I mean, Trump has long been obsessed with, as you point out, being on the inside, having the access, having the power and an extension of that inclination, I think, is his obsession with military generals. Right. He was kind of from the beginning of his presidency, from the outset, he was obsessed with the generals, my generals, keeping them close to his vest. And I think it's really remarkable that we have this Milley incident, which reflects so poorly on Donald Trump. And now we have reporting from the Times about uh, John Kelly, his former White House chief of staff, who has some damning 
revelatory uh, testimony under oath about just how characteristic a character, just how poor Trump's character was in terms of his recklessness while in office, his orders to investigate certain personnel at the IRS who weren't behaving well in Trump's eyes. I mean, the fact that there's been such a break with these men who he once held in such high esteem. I wonder how much you think that animates all of this grievance in the post-presidency years. Well, I do think for that reason that uh, his feud with General Milley particularly stuck in his craw. But you pointed out about John Kelly. There's another example in our book. Dozens and dozens of times, not just once, Donald Trump demanded uh, that his enemies have their security clearances taken away. People yeah. like John Brennan, for example. And, you know, this was something where he sought to weaponize the machinery of government but also to weaponize information, which is what he's doing there with General Milley. Milley particularly infuriated him because he chose him himself. He tried to basically uh, embarrass and undermine Jim Mattis, who was the defense secretary yes. that he was feuding with. And uh, he thought, well, I'm going to pick uh, this guy, General Milley, instead of the preferred choice, who was an Air Force general of Jim Mattis. And then it really didn't work out. But again, I would just like to point out that this kind of a feud between the top uniformed non-political military officer and the commander in chief is almost without precedent uh, in, in modern American history. It is something that really struck at sort of the foundations. And this began back during the election year in 2020. But this is some of the most really extraordinary reporting that I've ever done. The, the idea that we came this close yes. to weaponizing, basically, and politicizing the U.S. military in Trump's vain quest to stay in power after 2020. That's the context here. There was a domestic element to it. Trump sitting in the Oval Office uh, discussing openly with advisors whether he could somehow declare martial law in order to seize voting, voting machines. machines. So this was a nightmare scenario. That's the phrase that Milley used with others. He said this is a nightmare scenario. He said he was worried about the possibility of a Reichstag moment where uh, Trump would essentially yep. use the military to seize power. And then there's this international component to the fear that he would get us into an escalating crisis with Iran again as part of his effort to stay in power. This is something really unprecedented in American It's history. so it's incredible reporting and my oh my what it has set off in terms of a chain reaction. Susan Glasser, thank you so much. Welcome back. Please come back all the time. Still to come here tonight, protesters came out in force today as Iowa legislators convened a special session to take away their rights. Plus, when it comes to government spending, Republicans say one thing in Washington and then say the very opposite back at home. We'll talk, we'll talk about it with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. That's next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
Okay, here's a tweet from Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Broadband is vital for the success of our rural communities and for our entire economy. Great to see Alabama receive crucial funds to boost ongoing broadband efforts. Then the senator links to a local story about Alabama receiving $1.4 billion in funding for new broadband access. The problem for Senator Tuberville is that Alabama received that $1.4 billion in new broadband funding because of Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill, a bill that Republican Senator Tuberville voted against. And here is a similar tweet from Republican Senator John Cornyn celebrating the $3.3 billion in federal funds that Texas received to expand broadband in that state. And as you can probably guess, Senator Cornyn also voted against the Biden infrastructure bill that was responsible for that influx of funding. In South Carolina, it was Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace touting a new bus project in her state that was, again, made possible by that very same infrastructure bill, which Nancy Mace also voted against. In fact, when the bill passed, Congresswoman Mays called it a fiasco and a socialist wish list. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was asked about the Republican highway hypocrisy when he was in Nancy Mace's home state last month. Uh, well, uh, I would say, um, welcome aboard. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins me now. Mr. Secretary, your magnanimity is impressive in that moment, but I got to ask, what is the Biden White House plan for making sure Americans know who voted for these projects. I think by my count, a majority of Republicans in the Senate voted against this infrastructure bill that's going to bring bring $110 billion for road and bridge repair, $39 billion to modernize transit, $7.5 billion in electric uh, vehicle chargers. I mean, these are big investments that they voted against. So is there any kind of messaging strategy here to correct the wrongs? Well, look, I think it's important for these members of Congress, uh, for their constituents to know where they stood when we were fighting to get this money in the first place. Remember, this bill, even though it was bipartisan and even though we're proud of the strong bipartisan majorities that passed it in the end, this bill didn't come easy. It was declared dead multiple times. The president kept fighting for it. Congressional Democrats kept fighting for it. And some uh, congressional Republicans crossed over to work with President Biden and work with Democrats to get it done. Many others stood in the way, uh, denounced it as uh, wasteful spending denounced it as socialism. And of course, what's remarkable is uh, it turns out they don't think it's socialism when it's coming to their districts. They think it's so great uh, that they want to be at the press conference. They send press releases touting their uh, advocacy for it. Sometimes they even uh, describe themselves as having secured it, which is uh, uh, obviously, you know, it's hard not to chuckle at that sitting in the uh, Department of Transportation that's approving some of these grants or knowing that uh, other departments in the Biden-Harris administration are making the decision to send this funding to these constituencies. But I think what we're demonstrating is, look, we're going to send this funding where it's needed. Uh, and, and this is places that are red, blue, and purple. We're not going to punish any American 
for the short-sightedness of their elected officials. If there's a deserving project, and I've been in a lot of red, blue, and purple states, uh, recently was in eastern Kentucky, uh, the, the Panbowl uh, Lake uh, project there, that, that's going to mean a lot to the community of Jackson, an Appalachian community that was devastated by floods last year. And in repairing State Route 15, we're also going to be able to uh, help repair the dam that sits under it and make that community safer from flooding. Uh, it was a big priority for Governor Bashir, who was also a big supporter of this bill. Uh, and I'll tell you, when I got there, we weren't talking about Democrat, Republican. We were talking about how this is going to save lives. I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, where we celebrated uh, the, the work that was going uh, going on there with a railroad crossing that they've been wanting to get rid of since the early 1990s because it cuts the town in two. We're finally able to do it. These are good projects. And, you know, look, the sign of a bad policy is the people who pushed it abandon it later on. The sign of a good policy is even the people who fought it and stood in the way at the time uh, come to support it. I just wish they would be a little more straightforward and maybe even go so far as to acknowledge that they were wrong when they said that this infrastructure bill was a bad idea. And they were wrong to call it socialism, uh, as evidenced by the fact, or, or at least wrong to denounce it uh, as, as socialism and, and wasteful spending. Uh, if it is socialism, then it seems to be socialism that these Republicans uh, love when it's coming their way. Yeah, I mean, and I, I understand the sort of like, haha, the, the hypocrisy, the irony of it. It is uh, in some way hilarious, but it's also kind of quietly devastating, right? I mean, this is a party that fights tooth and nail against, oh, quote unquote, government, government overreach and then lies to the American public about its very positions and, and then spends a lot of time and a lot of ink and a lot of, you know, soapboxing, denouncing the Biden administration and, and calling it some of the worst names in the book. And some of it has happened had the intended effect, which is to erode Americans' confidence, not only in government and what it can do, but in this president in particular. And as you rightly point out, these are important projects that touch red and blue and purple states alike. And I think some Democrats in particular, it enrages them that this administration does not get the credit or, and Democrats don't get the credit that is due in terms of passing these big pieces of legislation, envisioning change in the country and moving it forward. I mean, do you think more needs to be done, like a WPA-style stamp or maybe signing things like Donald Trump was wanting to do? I mean, does there need to be more of an effort to correct the record? Yeah, I do think we should not be shy about making clear who was for and who was against this work. And you're going to uh, see that in terms of uh, certainly me and, and cabinet colleagues hitting the road, the president and the vice president hitting the road. You're going to see that uh, in, in terms of the, the, the story we're telling, signage, things to, to let people know how their tax dollars are being put to work. I will say that, you know, it actually represents progress that these uh, Republican congressional members who voted no uh, on the bill are talking about these projects, even if there's some uh, some obviously rich irony in them trying to take credit for the projects. Uh, I have to say, it's it's actually good news that they're talking about it because another pattern that that I've seen, especially in the in the ecosystem of of, of the media on the right, is they almost never talk about the projects at all. You know, I, I could go to uh, ten different states, uh, in, including conservative and rural areas, uh, de delivering fantastic projects, and then uh, maybe along the way I'll comment about. Uh, why we care a great deal about an issue like equity. 
and I will see some of these political figures or some of these media environments uh, d- denouncing us for uh, being so obsessed with, with uh, quote unquote, social issues that we're not taking care of the basics. But when we take care of the basics, they, they tend not to be there to uh, talk about it or to cover it. So uh, I'm, I'm saying this, you know, not to be snarky, but, but honestly, it really is progress to have them at least uh, acknowledging that these projects are happening, even if it comes in the form of them taking care, uh, you know, taking credit or trying to take credit for projects that they also tried to block when it came time to get them funded. But yeah, I think in the end, people hold their elected officials accountable for the choices they make. We certainly expect that. Uh, we expect to be held accountable for the policy consequences of the policies we advocate. And, uh, and I think people out there are pretty smart. They're going to connect the dots on who was there and who was not there to actually get the funding that is delivering broadband to rural areas, that is getting rid of railroad crossings in places where that's needed to be done for a long time, that is helping us fix roads and bridges that have needed to be fixed, helping us improve airports at a time when we've uh, recently recorded the uh, highest number of passengers ever in American history uh, as part of that July 4th weekend. And we know we need the infrastructure uh, to keep up with that growing demand. Uh, I think people are going to uh, see very clearly who stood where. And of course, we're not going to hesitate to remind them. I guess got to ask you really quickly, because you're a busy man, you multitask, you've been a presidential candidate before. What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump says he can't uh, he can't have a trial over his mishandling of classified information while he's running for president? Do you think that that's a, a good line of defense as someone who himself has run for president before? You know, uh, look, I, I think the important thing is that America, not just an individual, uh, but uh, our country can handle a lot of things at once. And you know, I'm not going to speak to a, a law enforcement process that's playing out. Uh, it's uh, very uh, appropriate in our system that that has nothing to do uh, with uh, with politics in terms of the, um, uh, the, the process that's followed. Certainly, uh, all I know about it is what I see on the news. But uh, look, uh, we're grownups. Uh, this is a country that has a lot on its plate. And this is a country that needs to uh, handle everything. <laughs> from uh, uh, processes uh, in our courts to the policy processes that I'm involved with every day on everything from uh, supporting the the national airspace at its busiest time in in U.S. history uh, to making sure we get these roads and bridges fixed, making sure we get these trains and tunnels done, uh, making sure we get this uh, all this good transportation funding out the door and help the communities that need it. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about on that front. Please come back. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time tonight, sir. Really appreciate it. I know you're busy. Thank you. Good being with you. We have more to come this evening, including a visit from the great Steve Kornacki. Plus, a battle is raging tonight in the state of Iowa as the Republican-led legislature is working overtime to override the will of its constituents. That's next. Hundreds of abortion rights protesters filled the hallways of the Iowa State Capitol today where they clashed with anti-choice activists. They were all there because the Republican-led House and Senate are meeting right now in a special session to advance a bill that would ban nearly all abortions in Iowa after six weeks of pregnancy, which is, of course, before most people know they are pregnant. Now, the Republican governor of the state, Kim Reynolds, called this special session after Iowa's Supreme Court deadlocked last month in a vote that left a previous six-week ban permanently blocked. 
That means that for now, Iowa allows abortion up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. By contrast, several neighboring states ban the procedure in almost all cases. But if the legislature moves as fast as expected, it could pass this bill and send it to the governor tonight. And that means Iowans could lose abortion access in just a few hours. It is not what they want. 61% of Iowa adults think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And yet, Iowa is poised to join the 14 states that have banned most abortions since the Supreme Court overturned Roe last year. If you remember, voters across the country responded to those bans by turning out to vote in November, which flipped some state-level Republican strongholds and suppressed a predicted red wave. Abortion could be a defining issue in 2024 as well. As Iowa lawmakers gather for this special legislative session, Republican presidential hopefuls are in Iowa, making their case to the people who will take part in the first Republican nominating contest, the Iowa caucuses. And protesters have not been shy in confronting the candidates on abortion. We're going to talk more about the issue in the 2024 presidential race with America's sweetheart, my colleague Steve Kornacki. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Iowa lawmakers are still at the state capitol tonight debating ahead of a vote that would essentially ban abortions in the state before most people know they are pregnant. Now, even though the majority of the state, like the majority of the country, supports abortion rights, it is still going to be one of the biggest issues in the presidential race next year. Joining us now to break it all down is Steve Kornacki, MSNBC national political correspondent and, of course, America's sweetheart. Steve, thank you for wearing a jacket and being here. How have these fights over abortion shaped the American electorate? It's it's interesting and a little complicated because I think and you, you show this in your setup there. I think broadly speaking, when you ask the question about should abortion be legal in the country, there's there is broad, wide support there in all of these states, even red states like Iowa, where you've had these six week bans that are proposed and potentially implemented here. There's broad opposition to that. So th- that's definitely a core element of this. But where it gets a little complicated, I think the politics get complicated, is take a state like Iowa. Yeah. They just had a governor's race last year. Mm-hmm. Governor Kim Reynolds was the incumbent, and she was signaling this was on her priority list. Yeah. This was on her agenda. She was going to push for the six-week ban. And in the face of the polling, like you showed, of broad opposition to that six-week ban, she won in a route. Or you look at Georgia. You know, Brian Kemp got reelected by eight points. He ran on a six-week ban. was part of the platform. And he got reelected. And, you know, at the same time, Herschel Walker's losing the Senate race. How do you square that then? Like, I think you were mentioning in the break, Kim Reynolds, governor of Iowa, has an 88 percent approval rating. How, how, what is going on in the minds of voters that they can say at once, we are opposed to this signature issue, but we also support this governor overwhelmingly? Yeah, it was. I, I thought Georgia last year was such an interesting example of because that clash between you have Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp. Basically running on the same set of issues on the same ticket in the same state and one won easily and one lost. And I think with the wild card there in the X factor ended up being in 2022, Donald Trump. Yeah. And it ended up being that Kemp had that distance from Trump and that Walker didn't. And what swung swing voters in Georgia in 2022, I think it was more. The Trump factor, the huh. January 6th factor, than it was the abortion factor, just because it was, it's very interesting to me. You know, Kemp was poised to sign, you know, the six week ban and he got reelected. And Herschel Walker said, I got the same position. Right. And he lost. But it was personal. It was a personal relationship we had with Trump and also the relationship that Kemp apparently had with the Georgia voters. What about Iowa as a presidential battleground here? I mean, we now know, we know that Trump has had the governor in his sights because she hasn't endorsed him yet. 
what is your expectation about the ability of anybody to break through right now, given the strength of Trump's numbers? It's, and this is if it's going to I guess you have to keep in mind, Trump did lose Iowa in 2016 by three points to Ted Cruz. So he's 0 for one in Iowa so far. But the polling that you've seen so far in Iowa this time around, completely different. But I think the theory for so many of these candidates is it's got to start in Iowa. They've got to use these next few months in Iowa to build that support the old-fashioned way, the grassroots way in Iowa, to trust, to hope, to, to, to pray that somehow that style of politics still works in a state like Iowa. And then they're counting on a slingshot effect. If you can beat them once in Iowa, can you roll it into New Hampshire or can you roll it down south? The one thing that never happened to Donald Trump in 2016 in the Republican primaries, he never lost two big contests Mm -hmm. back to back. He always had the answer for the loss. He lost Iowa. He bounced back in New Hampshire. He lost Wisconsin. He bounced back in the mid-Atlantic states. He always had an answer. If somebody can come come forward here and put together a one-two punch against him, that would be something he hasn't seen before. Steve Kornacki's prediction corner. I like it, or at least strategy corner. That would be strategy. (laughs) Not prediction (laughs) corner, to be clear. Steve Kornacki, my friend, thank you so much for closing out the show with me. That That is it for us tonight. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one of a kind body conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.